Welcome back to another episode of Authentically Us, the podcast where we talk about what it means to be authentic in everything that we do. Hey, I'm Conroy Smith, and I'm here with Tony Morton. Say what's up, Tony Boat. What's up, people? You know what it is. Sometimes we call him Tony Boo, just in case you guys ever, ever wonder. Um, hey, we have a special guest. Hey, but before we even dive into this, like, maybe give us a share, give us a rating, tell somebody about this. We want to promote this because we're getting, we're getting better. We're getting better guests. We're getting deeper conversations. So share, um, tell somebody about this. Tell your mama and them because it is very, very important. Today's guest, we got J.S. Park in the house, um, and we're going to be talking about a lot. He has a book. He has another book coming. He's a Korean-American, and we talk about Jesus and what it means to be authentic in his skin. So tune in, turn it up, make it loud. Let's get into it. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Authentically Us. Today, we have the man, the myth, and the legend, J.S. Park. Uh, J.S. Park, uh, he only has a small bio, which includes (laughs) hospital chaplain. He has his Master's of Divinity, his uh, B.A. in Psychology. He's Korean-American. He's an author of the book, The Voices We Carry. He's a six-degree black belt. Again, no big deal. No big deal. Son, <laughs> he's a son of immigrants. He's an ex-atheist, and he loves Jesus. J.S., what's going on, my man? Tony, Conroy. Conroy, the national superstar. <laughs> Tony, Tony is the international superstar. <laughs> How are you all doing? I am glad to be here. Hey, we're doing well. So glad to have great. you. Um, we're excited just just for this opportunity. Uh, guys, he is a busy guy. So um, just for you to be on here, we're, we're thankful for that. Yeah, thank you, Conroy. And to be super transparent, this is our take two. Is that right? Because <laughs> I know our, our take one, we had technical difficulties and I heard we got to do a take two. And I, I was more than happy to do it. Mm. And I know we had scheduled a couple of days ago. My uh, my two year old, she's been having nightmares like every night for the last few weeks. Oh my And gosh. so, yeah, so she'll, you know, she's such a mama's girl, but then she's been calling out dad, dad, you know, in the middle of her sleep. And then when she wakes up, she calls dad. So I've been going out there and trying to comfort her. So, so. I sometimes lay on the ground for a couple hours at a time, just next to her in the middle of the night. So that, that day I was supposed to reschedule take two of you guys. I was so out of it. So I'm glad that y'all made the time to reschedule, re-reschedule again yeah. <laughs> for today. Absolutely. Well, what we have to uh, talk about today is super important. And so we didn't want to miss um, the opportunity to have this conversation so in your bio, I mentioned you're an author of the book, The Voices We Carry. Uh, talk to us about what uh, what that book's about. Yeah, you know, I think the concept itself, the idea that we all carry voices, we have different voices that direct what we do, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. 
There are these voices that really live in our gut, in our brains, and in our heart. And it could be advice that we heard in third grade. It could be a traumatic event that occurred that tells a story about our value and who we are. Um, it could be self-doubt. It could be people-pleasing. It could be judging others. But there are always, always these voices running in our minds, and they often run us. And unless there's this investigation or this level of self-awareness in getting to the bottom of them, really hearing them, really seeing where that signal is coming from, uh, those voices can very easily uh, become our operations without us knowing, right under our level of, of awareness. And so the book really covers, I, I break it down into a model where I break down to four internal voices and four external. Those may not be the only voices, but in my time with my patients at the hospital, these are the ones that I encountered in my patients uh, and in myself. Wow. That's so good. And it's true. We, we do have voices that, you know, direct and, and guide us. Um, and you mentioned about, you know, how your patients kind of influenced this, this book. Um, was that the main reason that you were like, I need to write this book because I'm hearing stories from them? Or was it more personal? Or was it a both? Yeah, I think both. But, you know, when I'm sitting there with a patient, and we're talking, it's just two people interacting, two voices interacting. But what I kept noticing was the patient is not always, they're, they're never by themselves. They have the voices of the doctors and the nurses or the surgeons, their family, uh, the voices of their childhood trauma that they've experienced, the voice of their, in a sense, their sickness that's telling them a story about themselves. When I'm talking with a person, I'm never just talking with them. I'm talking with an entire history of heritage, of all the things that have happened to them, of all the beliefs that they have, their worldview, all of it, all of it. And so we have, there's two people sitting, but really there's not. It's a multitude of people talking. And when I entered and talked with a patient, I also carried voices in. I didn't come in solo by myself. I also came in with presumptions and assumptions. I came in with a worldview as well. And so as I started talking with my patients, it's probably an idea that I always had kind of under the surface because I would talk about it a lot when I was a youth pastor and teaching youth and college students. But just this idea of voices that we have that are always running, that are always kind of evaluating ourselves and other people, or they may direct the way that we approach other people and approach the world. That idea was kind of always there, but it became really crystal clear to me when I started having just these one-on-one -on -one interactions with patients and recognizing we both come in and we just have this subterranean river of voices that we, each of us carry and really influence how we act and what we believe. Wow. So like that is so profound and I think you're so right. I'm not, I've never thought about it that way of it's never just two people. Yeah. You're, you're speaking to all the voices that are currently in that conversation. And yeah, that's just mind blowing. But talk to us about the voices that you carry with you today. Yeah. In fact, Tony and Conroy, if you want to do a thought experiment right now, like we're, we're kind of live in a sense recording this podcast, right? Yeah. And so as you're talking, you're talking with me, 
but also there's like a trialogue happening. It's not just a dialogue. There's all this other stuff right over here, right? Mm. And, and for those who can't see on the podcast, I'm just pointing out kind of outside myself. Yeah. So really you're talking to me, but there's like these other things. So like when I would, for example, uh, preach on Sundays when I bring the message, um, I'm talking to my students or my congregation, but then there's another voice there as well. And sometimes I would say something and I would hear this voice pop up like, what you just said, that was weird. Why'd you say it like that? Mm. Even as I'm talking right now, there's, there's a little, there's a little bit there, like an inner monologue. And so I'm looking at y'all and I'm talking with y'all and interacting, but there's something else there that pops up. And so I'm sure Conroy, if I asked you right now, like, what is that voice that's popping up for you as I'm talking and as I'm talking about voices and as you're talking with me and as you're asking me questions, you're like, I want to make sure I ask the right question. So this episode does well and it goes in the right, you know, like I want to make sure this conversation is great. There's all these things happening. Mm -hmm. So, so even right now, as I'm talking with y'all, I'm bringing all of myself, I'm bringing the, the nervousness of trying to, trying to say something interesting or trying to say something that may resonate with the listener. But also I want to be authentic and really speak for myself and not worry about that part. And I'm also bringing my Asian Americanness. I'm bringing all my experience as a hospital chaplain. I'm bringing my, even at the top of the hour, I was talking about being a dad. I'm bringing being a husband, all of it, right? And then bringing uh, that, there's the trauma-informed care piece. I want to make sure that as I'm talking, that I'm being sensitive and that I'm being gracious towards other people as much as I can, gracious towards you. So it, let me, I'll flip that question back. I mean, Conroy and Tony, what right now, right here at this level, are you, are you hearing voices too? Are there voices right now going off? Yeah, absolutely. Even when you were, even when Tony was talking, I was thinking about um, another, another person we interviewed, Logan Renee, when she was talking about, you know, when we're talking about Juneteenth and the meaning of Juneteenth and how, you know, when we speak up on behalf of our ancestors or we speak up on behalf of maybe somebody who, who came before us, it's like, you know what? Those are voices that we have to speak up for because they couldn't speak yeah. up for themselves. So when, even as I was thinking, I'm like, oh man, that's a voice that like I constantly hear now because yes. we had that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That, and that's exactly where my mind went. Um, and I think something that's uh, constantly my my a voice I carry is this idea of like no one wants to hear this, you know. Whether it's a podcast, whether it's just something I have to say, I've always wrestled with: um, do people care about my voice and what I have to say? And and you know, if we're really being authentic. This is doing the podcast is a way for me to combat that lie and get my voice out there. And whether people like it or not, it's out there and people can hear my voice because quite honestly, I think this conversation is needed in Conroy and I, and our guests, we all, we all have something to say. And so, our voices matter within this conversation about what it means to be authentically us in the places we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Tony, can I just point out that's thanks for sharing that. And Conroy, you mentioned how you're carrying the voice of your ancestor and that's something you are now consciously aware of. So you, you found the good and you're keeping the good. And Tony, it was like, you were saying basically 
this podcast, the microphone right in front of you, it's to combat or go against the lie that my voice somehow doesn't matter or it shouldn't be heard. And so that became fuel for you. And I think, I think um, Conroy for sure, a hundred percent resonate with that. And Tony, like when you were saying that it's true because very often when I'm with my patients or with my family or raising my daughter, I'm trying to be the voice that I always needed. And I'm also trying to be the microphone that I always wow. needed, Ooh. you know? So, so both of you hit it at that from different yeah, angles, but that's it's almost good. the same, same idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. You know, you, you, you've talked about your, your daughter, you know, we started the, the podcast off talking about your daughter. Um, talk a little bit about what it means to like, you know, the voices that you carry, what voices are you trying to instill in her or, you know, lessons or just things that you're trying to instill in her based on experiences that you have had or based on experiences from, from your patients? Yeah. You know, I would say there are probably, as you were saying that I'm thinking of at least three layers. Mm. I think one is I would want her to always feel safety with me. Like she can say anything, she can vent anything, she can be any type of way, be any kind of person, and she can feel safe to talk with me about that. Anything she's going through, whatever she wants to process, any person she wants to be, I will be there for her. And I, I don't want to ever have any kind of doubt about that ever, that she can just come to me anytime. So there are times when she cries, like, and when she cries, she can cry. And we know, you know, those of us who have kids, we know when a kid cries it there's a lot of strength <laughs> you know and they got big feelings they got big feelings that they don't know always how to express it and i never tell her don't cry i always tell her it's okay to cry i hold her and i say it's okay to cry it's okay to cry it's and, and she may not understand that only being she just turned two she may not get that but i want her to know that i've always told her it's okay to cry that's okay i think there's that layer of safety the other one is her heritage like you were saying earlier, Conroy, by ancestors, there was a whole big uh, chunk or part of my life where I had a lot of internalized self-hatred because I wanted to be white. Because to me, being Asian American, I was so otherized. I was so uh, hated against, discriminated against that I almost wanted to beat it out of myself. I didn't, I didn't want to be this. You know, so I would imbibe into as much culture as I could. I wanted to understand all American I read as many books and TV shows and all the pop culture references. I needed to know them all because I didn't want to be outside of it. And there was a part of me that didn't like hanging out with other Asians or Asian Americans. And there was a part of me that almost had like a secondhand embarrassment. So maybe I'll have been in the situation before, but like I'll be sitting at a table in a restaurant and I, I'll be with like, my, for example, my white friends. And there, there's this table that may have like an Asian family and they're laughing so loud. They're being so loud. And I almost feel embarrassed that they're being so loud. And I almost feel sorry to my white friends that they're acting like yeah. this. And they're looking at me like I need to do something about it because yeah. they're being, because this table of Asian Americans or Asians is being so loud. And so I had this kind of like push and pull with it. And it was really only, I would say the last maybe seven to 10 years, I'll probably say seven, eight years that I really started to go back into my roots mm -hmm. and make peace with who I am and where I came from and what my parents tried to instill in me finding that good and keeping that good. Cause certainly there are dysfunctional parts of my culture and my heritage, but there's so much good and beauty in it. So I want to bring that to my daughter. And I would say the third thing real quickly is 
my daughter being an Asian American woman, she's going to be an Asian American woman one day. And, you know, barring that it, she may choose something else and I'll be there for a hundred percent of the way, however she uh, chooses, but her being an Asian American woman is going to be a struggle and a challenge in and of itself. I follow plenty of, you know, uh, Asian American uh, women who are activists, influencers, authors, politicians, and the level of hate that they get mm. online is just a whole other level of hate. I thought I got some hate and their level of, it's just exponentially something else. Yeah. And just the boldness. And when I say boldness, not a good boldness, the boldness that people have to be able to say the things that they do. Some of these women, it's, it's, it scares me and it infuriates me. It makes me worried for my daughter and it brings up that protective impulse. Like mm. I just want to cover it and take it all for her. Mm. And so yeah. how can I, yeah, how can my wife and I raise our daughter in a way that's not like, you know, look out behind every corner because they're out to get you. Not in that sense, mm. but a healthy sense of this world is not always going to be safe. And here are ways in which you can find safety and protection and it's not it's not ever your fault you've never brought on, on your upon yeah. yourself you know the whole thing yeah. about like oh it's because of what they were wearing it's never i never yeah. want to have her blame herself or feel responsible ever for that mm. and the world that you're moving through can be cruel and unsafe yeah. mm. so so how can i impart to her this sense of the world is fractured uh the world can be hard but it doesn't say anything about your value as an Asian American, as a woman, it says nothing about your dignity mm. and it cannot take that from you. That is irrevocable. I mean, yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, June, you, you mentioned so mm. many good things. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see the relationship you and your, your daughter have. Um, I saw a, oh, yeah. a recent post where you guys were playing a game, laughing at, at the lightning in Tampa, which is, <laughs> which is funny, but like, I feel like those are things that she's going to remember, you know, those little, random quirks um but you know i can relate so much i'm sure tony can too with you know being around white friends and then you know seeing other black people like you know being loud or just expressing themselves and it's like oh man but now i've actually came tony and i have actually talked about this since the last two years where we've really embraced what it means to be authentically us and our heritage um yeah. and it, it is a process and I love that you are going through this process with your wife and your daughter, like as a family. And I think that's going to be so beautiful, but I did want to talk about a little bit about like you, you, you're growing, you're growing up. Cause I know, um, you know, growing up in, in a black family, we have things that are very toxic and things that are very traumatic. Um, but it's also there's way, there's a lot of beautiful moments. Um, and I also have a lot of Asian friends who tell me horror stories of, you know, their parents and, and growing up. Can you talk a little bit about like what your childhood um, looked like uh, growing up? Yeah, thanks, Conroy. You know, um, I think it seems like when I think about my family and I think about like you were saying about the hard parts of our culture and sort of the, the dysfunction in it, it's very possible that trauma, when it becomes almost a, like a continuous dysfunction, it then becomes part of culture. And then we see it as something that's normal. 
Wow. Right? So th- trauma becoming dysfunction, becoming culture. And that starts from uh, in our family of origin. And it was passed on from uh, the culture or the family before. Right. And so absolutely there are things in my own culture that I feel need to be held accountable and called out. And so to answer your question, you know, my own family, both my parents were very physically and verbally abusive. And, um, you know, there's that whole thing about like, we're supposed to give credit to our parents and say, well, they did the best they could with, you know, what they knew. Sometimes I'm like, did they though? <laughs> did they really do their best? <laughs> right. And, you know, I know they, I know they did. I, they worked hard. They sacrificed a lot. I, I know that for sure. Uh, but for me in my mind, that still didn't make any of the abuse. Okay. Yeah. You know, mm. they would hit me with weapons. They would, they would punch me in the face. I have a scar on my head because of, uh, you know, the abuse, all, you know, my nose is busted, my ears busted, all kinds of things. Uh, and I was a little kid. What could I have done then? And um, it was a very patriarchal type of culture growing up, meaning every, anything that my dad said would go. And my dad, I felt like even to this day, hardly even knew my mom. Mm. Like they basically went on a couple dates and then my mom got pregnant. They had an abortion. And then I was the second baby that came along. And so uh, they really didn't even know each other. But then even as they got married, even as they lived together and raised me and my brother, my dad still didn't really know my mom. Why? Because he didn't really even try in a sense to get to know her because there was not that kind of even ground of relational intimacy. It was more like you are the one who raises the kids, you know? So there was a lot of that kind of dysfunctional stuff happening. And I want to be careful because I don't want to critique my own Asian Eastern culture in a way that's stereotypical, you know what I mean? Because I know that a lot of Asian Americans, and this is true, we talk about our honor, shame culture and all that kind of stuff, like honor is so important and reputation and my name and making sure that I stick to my word and my family line. But sometimes I do feel like that's a little bit Panda Express version of like, (laughs) you know, quote Stephanie Fu, she talks about what if that's a white person's version of what Asian culture is like, and I'm just picking up on that, you know? Wow. And so... Yeah. And so every Asian family is different, but I can tell you that we did fit some of those, those stereotypes, you know, especially the patriarchy stuff. And, uh, at the same time as my parents were abusive and things at home, they didn't really have a great relationship at all, or even a real authentic relationship. I had a protectiveness about my parents because of the language barrier. People would try to rip them off all the time. They were trying to be business owners. And so people will put things in the contract, like, you know, if you buy this building, you have to pay all the back taxes on it. And they'd be like tens of thousands of dollars of back taxes. They didn't see that small print and people would try to get one over on them. And me being a young kid, I would know it and I would see it and I would have to almost become their scam translator. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, there's this push and pull, like I'm being beaten up at home. I'm scared of messing up at home. Mm -hmm. You know, I took home my first B plus, I was probably like nine or 10. My dad beat me up in the car. You know, things like that. I'm scared all the time. And then at the same time, they're telling me that they love me. They're working so hard to sacrifice for me. And we're growing up poor. And so I know that everything that we have is because they're working so hard. You know, they're, they're saving up to get that business. They're saving up for this and that. Saving up for my education. And so there's a part of me that felt like I owed them. And when I saw somebody try to take from them, of course, I was like, you can't take from, from, you know, that 
there was almost like a dishonor, disgrace, like injustice type type of thing happening for me. Because it's like, oh, because they can't speak English, you're going to take advantage of them. Oh, because they can't read that fine print. And so there was a part of me that was really, really wrapped up in making sure that justice was done. And so maybe y'all can relate a little bit about that. But yeah, it's like at home being beaten up, but then outside trying to keep that united front. Yeah, it it sounds like there's a lot of ambivalence when you're in towards your parents. Yeah, it was like a, it's very torn, you know, very conflicted. Because you know how like, if you ever talk with a friend, you're processing and venting and you talk about your own family and this and that. Let's say, you know, you and your parents or something get into something, you can talk about it. But if someone else starts talking about your mom, you're like, hey, 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 (laughs) you're like, wait a minute, I can say that. (laughs) You can't say that. You know, I mean, I know I just spent the last 10 minutes talking about my dad. But uh, yeah, I'm just talking to talk about my dad. Don't you don't talk about my dad. Yeah, it was a very torn, conflicted, like pulled in two. Yeah. yeah, And and I think ambivalence is the right word. Good word, Tony. You know, I'm out here. SAT word of the day. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, um you, you uh, Tony mentioned in your in your um bio that uh you're an ex-atheist. And I can only imagine that maybe some of how you grew up maybe influenced that, you know, uh maybe questioning God or questioning this whole Christianity thing. Um is, talk a little bit about like your journey to to christ yeah yeah you know so i think i mentioned earlier like my parents didn't plan on having me and they let me know about that early on so i spent a long time in my life believing i was some kind of cosmic accident like i'm not on purpose i wasn't intentional and so i had this whole i guess you could call it a type of theology where anytime i did something good i was earning my stay and proving that i should live Anytime I did something bad, I was like, oh, man, I'm causing the butterfly effect right now. <laughs> and I'm messing up the timeline. Like, I literally really, really thought that. Wow. And so I never wanted to do anything wrong, never wanted to mess up. And I, was, I just felt a lot of pressure to kind of earn my living, basically, earn my keep, my stay. And really, when I started going to church, I would say was kind of my senior year of high school, college years. I was still an atheist. They wanted me to play drums and I was happy to play for the the praise team they had there. And they were very gracious to let me play, even though I didn't believe any of this stuff. I think really there was no overnight epiphany. There was no, like I woke up and then I'm like, you know what? I believe all this stuff. Or like I, I read a verse or something or a book and then, you know what? Now I've changed, you know, it, it, I don't think there's anything like that. I really think the love of this small little Korean church that I played drums at, they were so loving it was like a supernatural type love. And I, I know maybe that's a very cliche kind of cheesy answer, but it caused me to pause and almost extrapolate backwards. Cause I was like, the way they're loving me is impossible. There's gotta be something to this. And I'm not saying I, I never like I now I'm, I believe. And then I a hundred percent believe all the time. There's still doubts. There's still like, was that all real? Or was that like, did I really experience God? And, you know, what, what, maybe they just are, were a really nice. You know, I, there's all these questions, right, about does that really point to God? Uh, but they just loved so hard that they made God real for me. Mm. You know, it was undeniable for me. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes 
today, I shudder to think, what if I was still an atheist and I tried to go to an American church today? Would I have found that kind of uh, graciousness? What would I have found there? I, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really the love of this church that just got me to investigate and got me curious. It was not an apologetics. It was not an argument. There was nothing academic. I did all that later, you know. But really, it was just this church that kept on loving me as community. And I don't think that's an original story, but really for me, it was just this slow burn into like, okay, there's something to this. I'm going to look into it. And God was made visible. Christ was made visible through this church, just loving on me, through the worst of me, through the worst of everything that was happening. Yeah. And and to build off of that, that's not a cliche. Like, I think when when we have uh, childhoods filled with trauma, um, like I had, um, you know, not having you know my father around, growing up with a disability, getting bullied and picked on, we we start to believe this narrative that we truly are unlovable. Um, that there's no way that people can love us fully for who we are. At least that's what I thought. And then I met a core group of guys from high school, Conroy being one of them, and they showed me such a radical love that I had to ask, what, like, what is... Like, who is God? Because, you know, it it did seem supernatural because they were breaking through a narrative that I believed my whole life and showing me that, oh, wow, despite my disability, my lack of a father, me being, even being biracial, I am still able to be fully known and fully loved. And so... Like I'm right there with you. The the church has such a strong witness if we just learn how to love people where they're at and let God do the rest. Like yeah. you know, a uh, a pastor that Kamo and I really enjoy, Michael Todd says they must belong before they have to behave. And like mm-hmm. Man, if every Christian knew that, what like the church would just be such a great witness because the reality of it is we all probably felt like we belonged before we got our act together. We just forget how awful we really were. Yeah. You know, Tony, that, that brings to mind as you were saying that, like, I think because I'm still friends with plenty of people who, of course, don't have any faith background. And I work with chaplains who they run the range of different beliefs and all of that. And I love and embrace all of it, you know. Um, And I think the question that sometimes comes up is, do you think it's because you were traumatized and you were vulnerable or broken or because you had this hard childhood that when you started hearing about God's love that you just kind of fell for it? You know what I mean? Like 
where you almost condition to have this psychological propensity to believe in some kind of supernatural love. And that's why you just like decided to believe it. You know, I get that question sometimes. I think it's a great question. I think that can be true in some cases, but what I always tend to fall back on is like, I'm like, well, isn't, isn't everybody looking for some sort of authentic connection or some, and there is that vulnerability in all of us that craves or needs or wants that support and that kind of constancy of permanent value yeah. of something yeah. that kind of stamps on us this imago day, the divine value. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's cheesy or cliche. I, I really think all of us come in that way. And I seen this study recently it really bothered me because of like the way that people commented on it, but it showed like religious people versus non-religious people. And it showed like non-religious people uh, tend to have a higher IQ and intelligence, whereas non-religious tend to have lower IQ or less intelligence, right? However, they're measuring that. And so I think the comments that, that I saw in this post, it was on Reddit or something, but the comments were just like, yeah, of course, you know, like religious people are going to be stupid or, or not as intelligent. And I guess I kind of get that. Like for me, of course, education is absolutely important. We need resources. And, and, and I can see like, okay, if they want to read into it that way, that's cool. You know, but what I thought was most religions that from my understanding are, they will accept any person in any socioeconomic status from any education, from any background. And that's why these surveys are showing a wide demographic of people of different backgrounds, different educations, different socioeconomic statuses. So it's not that quote unquote religion necessarily makes people less intelligent. I don't think that's that that can be true. I, you know, I'm thinking of cults and things like that, maybe. But I also think the correlation could go the other way in which religious places, sacred places, they're so open to everyone that, of course, you're going to get all types of people. And, and so for me, I flipped that backwards. And that I think we are all looking for something and we're looking for that wide open space and that grace to belong. Yeah. You, you mentioned that, you know, you're a chaplain um, and you work with other chaplains. And from my understanding, um, chaplains, you kind of have to kind of know a lot about all the religions, you know, not just specific ones. So um, what is your relationship like with other chaplains who may be um, not Christian, you know, who may be Buddhist or Muslim or whatever? Like, what is your relationship with them? And like, what, like, what kind of conversations do you guys have when it comes to religion and faith and, and like, you know, hey, here's this patient. Um, this is this was what I told them. But like, what would you guys say? Like, do those things happen? Yeah. So to give you some background, like the chaplain program itself is really intense. It's like a six month internship. They accept maybe a dozen people a year. And then a one year residency, they accept about five people a year. And so I did the internship of the residency and the chaplaincy at this hospital. And I think at any hospital, teaching hospital, they're going to accept people of any faith background. There are a lot of Christians, but we're going to get like a Buddhist. We're going to get Muslims. We're going to get uh, like rabbis or those in Judaism. Uh, we're going to get atheists. We're going to get the whole range of people. And so 
Yeah, I work with all different kinds of religions and the patients that we visit. I'm over here in Florida, so I do see a lot of Christians and Catholics, mm -hmm. but we get all kinds of people. Right. And when I, I think when I first started chaplaincy, to be truthful, like I grew up an atheist, then I went to Southern Baptist Seminary. <laughs> and oh, so wow. I went totally to the other end of conservatism and just like kind of the evangelical world. You know, and I felt almost a little bit like an undercover agent at times because people would say things. I'm like, ah, I don't agree with that <laughs> at all, yeah. you know, and then I ended up somehow in chaplaincy uh, as an interfaith chaplain. We're ecumenical. We work with everybody. And so the difference, I would say, and this is still giving you background, the difference between a minister and a chaplain is a minister will impart information and they're preaching theology and they're basically giving wisdom to their congregation in a sense. Uh, the counseling does happen, but mainly it's about that. There's that Sunday message, the Bible study on Wednesday, sometimes Friday services. You know, they're giving information. But a chaplain, what we do is we enter in as a presence. We're not a preacher. Mm. And we're not trying to convert or proselytize or give any kind of necessarily theology. I am a listening presence. We are called a non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. That's kind of the technical term for a chaplain. Mm. And the patient whichever kind of framework that they have, religious or non-religious. Uh, I'm not there to change it. I'm there to be kind of a companion or a guide or a light so that the system that they already have, the framework that they have for figuring things out, I can help them through it with the resources that they already have. Because my assumption is people who come in with their own questions very often carry their own answers. So I'm not, I'm not there trying to preach at them. And with my coworkers who are, I mean, even when you have like a Christian coworker, how many different kinds of Christians are there? Yeah. You know, yeah. It, every single Christian person is going to be different in different type in their theology. They're going to range in all kinds of different incremental degrees or very, very vastly different. And I would just say that it has made me, I think, broader and more expansive and fuller to be able to hold all these different ways of approaching God, all these different ways of people describing God and reaching God. And, and for me, I think in the beginning, coming out of that from atheism to conservatism and then into chaplaincy, it was kind of a whiplash. And when I entered it, I'm like, oh, I'm working with all these different kinds of faiths and I got my own beliefs and then I'm seeing patients, but you know, I, and I see interns come in and they're kind of the same way, especially if they're from an evangelical background. They're like, oh, I can't wait to tell people about Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of not what we do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, unless the patient wants that. But yeah, it's not our it's not our primary goal. But to answer your question, Conroy, for me, it has been such an enriching experience. I mean, it's lowered. I would say it's built basement on basement. You know what I mean? It has just been able to give me the capacity to even better serve patients, mm. to meet them where, where they are. And sometimes a patient will ask me like, well, what do you believe? And I'm, I'm happy to share about that. Mm. Uh, but very often my whole goal, my, my role is to be like a companion in somebody's journey and, and, and not a converter. I'm not trying to convert any of my patients. You know, I'm really being bringing that compassion, bringing that support and bringing light to the things that very often they already know. Wow. You know, I didn't even, when you were like saying like different types of chaplains and you mentioned atheists, I'm like, how does that even happen? But then when you describe what a chaplain is, I was like, oh, that makes way more sense. So that's, that's education to me. Um, 
that you are just like a, a listening, you know, presence. And um, there's actually a story in the Bible that I remember um, when my grandfather was passing, when my grandfather passed away, our pastor came over and he just kind of just sat with us. You know, it wasn't like he, you know, preached a sermon or, you know, gave us advice. He just sat with us. And he talked about um, the story in the Bible. I can't remember where exactly where it was at, where they were just talking about, you know, just being there. Presence is enough. And I think that is very biblical. Um, the chaplaincy idea of like a listening presence to be there. And I think there's power in just being there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it calls cool. to mind. I mean, first Kings 19, when Elijah, you know, sat under that broom tree and was like, Lord, I've had enough, you know, take my life. And the angel came and the angel didn't come with like a lecture or a lesson or anything like that. You know, just the angel touched Elijah, gave him that bread, the water, the hot soup and all of that, you know, and then it let him nap twice. He, he ate, fell asleep, got up and then fell asleep again. You know, I've, I've had days like that. <laughs> I just love that it takes the time to say, yeah, he slept again, you know. <laughs> and then uh, when he woke up the second time, the angel said, you know, this journey is too much for you. And I think the kind of the underneath that statement, the journey is too much for you. What he's really saying is you can't do this alone. I'm going to be here with you, you know. And I love that Elijah in his depression and in his, in his despair, God didn't come and just start, you know, with this whole like sermon, he could have done that, you know, but rather it was just the touch of an angel sustenance food, mm. you know, and then I will be with mm. you. Mm. And I love that. And that has, I think Elijah's my favorite, you know, character in the Hebrew scriptures. I think that has been the model for me in chaplaincy the model for me to, to be that person in that room. Wow. Wow. Man, that's uh, so good. So I want to transition to uh, one more aspect of what you do before we go to our next uh, segment. Talk to us about the notes you post on Instagram. Yeah. Well, so the Instagram stuff, for one, like I had a sudden uptick of, of followers and I, I, I'm sometimes like very surprised that people like are into reading my stuff because I feel like it's almost like a personal journal entry. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just for me. And then people will message me or comment like how much they resonate with that. Like I think recently I wrote about loneliness uh, I read about mental health or racial injustice, something like that. But when I'm telling a part of my story, I'm like, I'm just so surprised that people have resonated with it, you know? And so, yeah, Tony, did you have a more specific question about it? You were saying about the, the things that I write on there? Yeah. So why, like, why do you write those? And what, mm. like, started that? Yeah. You know, I had a... um like in high school, I had a blog before they called it a blog. Mm. It was like a HTML site. <laughs> I don't think you'd find it anymore, <laughs> but I was just, I was just write things cause I loved writing. And then even when I was real little, I would carry it around a notepad. And I would just write stories about like things that I saw. And I had a WordPress blog, like in the mid two thousands, y'all remember WordPress, WordPress, that's still a thing, right? And then uh -huh. I had Tumblr like in 2007 or something. Yeah. 
And then I had a, no, this is going way back. I had a Zanga. Do y'all remember Zanga? Barely. Like, like, yeah, I would open up my, like, like way back here. <laughs> yeah, I, I would open up my, you know, Netscape Navigator, <laughs> Internet Explorer 1.0, <laughs> and use Zanga. Good dial-up. Um, yeah, but I, I always wrote just as, like, an outlet, I guess, because I, I had just so much I was carrying that I wanted to write. And I would have zero clicks or zero views for months sometimes. Like people weren't really reading my stuff. I wasn't really, you know, who was I? I was just writing. Um, but right around when I got the Tumblr, people started, you know, they had that message function where you can ask anonymous questions. People would ask me these questions like, you know, I'm, I have, uh, I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling with depression. Is that okay? And so I would respond, you know, really, really like um, raw questions that I felt like, people didn't feel safe to ask their pastor or to ask their parents or to ask a friend, or they felt like they would be shamed. So they might ask me anonymously to, as best as I could, I would just graciously answer. And then I was right, as I was writing my own story about some of my own stuff, I just found people resonating. And so I think Tony, to answer your question, there's part of me that writes because I just love writing, you know, and it's an outlet for me. And I feel like if, if there's time that goes by where I'm not writing, I just, I just feel like, I'm, I'm not really at peace. You know, this is something I feel like maybe I was made to do, but there's this other part of me that loves putting out writing there, like putting it out there because I know maybe if even one person is, is impacted, uh, if, if it resonates with one person and maybe that's a very generic answer, but truly like I'm so overwhelmed all the time when I post something, when people respond, I'm like, every single time, I never want to get over it. I'm just like, dang, people are actually reading this. People are actually resonating. I thought this was so personal. It could, it could, it could meet at that wavelength, but it happens to, and, I, and I'm very glad and grateful. Yeah. And so yeah. I think I can say as an encouragement too, to people who are writing online, like, I think there is a sense in which people are, and I'm not calling on anybody, but there is a sense in which influencers, bloggers, writers, all of that, all of us, we're trying to get that platform or trying to be heard as widely as possible. And all I can say is if you got like a hundred followers, you know, that's a hundred followers, you know, if you got 500 followers, that's like enough for a mega church. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a lot of people, that's true. you know, yeah. and, and just, to, just to encourage you to not, not give up. I mean, of course, take breaks, of course, self-care, of course, if it gets wild, block all the people and all of that, you know, but I would say for me, I just spent years just writing with no audience. Like yeah. it didn't matter who was reading or who looked at my stuff. I just wrote because I love writing. And so as an encouragement, like for those who are trying to get that platform, it's okay not to rush. It's okay to take your time. Mm. And if you got your, you know, 100 people or your 50 people, I mean, Jesus had how many? 12 and they all left in the end. Right. Yeah. And they came back wow. later when it was okay. Yeah. Mm. So if Jesus had 12, if you got 50, that's, that's quite a lot. That is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So, so I, that's as an encouragement, I would say, don't give up, keep yeah. writing, keep expressing yourself. Man. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I remember, um, back in April of last year, I met you at a retreat online and a part of our package for the retreat you included a note for all of us. And my note said, God is in the business of breathing life in the hurting places. And kind of like 
uh, in that time, it was so like needed because like you know I was hurting with stuff with my dad and you know really in therapy trying to figure out like my racial identity and how do I um operate as a biracial man in um in this world and so like your note was very timely and so just encourage you man like keep doing that because it really does impact people beyond the likes and the comments yeah and thanks tony well june um i had one more question for me and this is uh this is something that i think will be very special what is one piece of advice you want your daughter to know when she listens to this maybe when she's like 12 or something what's one piece of advice like you want her to know Mm. when she can like comprehend this (laughs) one piece of advice that I would want my daughter to know is uh you know this is this is the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question Conroy and and certainly it may not be um like the main thing but this is just what came to mind is uh take care of yourself. And I don't mean that in a selfish way. Uh, I don't mean that it, as in like, you know, just look at, worry about yourself. Cause we got too much of that going on in this country. Right. But what I do mean by that is I have this way and I've seen her do this. She's only two, but she's constantly sharing all her stuff all the time. She's always giving away all her stuff. When she's eating, she'll like hold out a piece of the food and she'll be like, dad, dad. And she wants me to eat it too. You know? And when I was a kid, I was always giving my stuff away all the time. And then even now I I have a hard time saying no. So I'm not saying my daughter, just because she's doing that now, she's going to do that. But there is something about each of us that truly like kind, compassionate people, we, we desperately want to help and to serve, you know, and sometimes at the expense of ourselves and we don't draw those lines. We don't draw those boundaries. And sometimes exhaustion becomes a badge in which it gives us value when it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so Conroy, that's, that's an awesome question. I guess if I, if my daughter does listen to this one day, I would just say, you know, if you're in activism or if you become an artist or you're dancing or expressing yourself or you're doing, you know, you're an accountant or, you know, you're on a movie set, wherever you're going to be, just make sure that as you are serving and loving and giving part of yourself into the world, please, please, please take care of yourself, you know, because in the end, as cynical as this sounds, not everybody is going to look out for you, Yeah, you know, yeah. in the end, right? Yeah. I mean, people are going to ask and demand, demands, due dates, deadlines. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of world that it, it's all going to converge and people are going to want you for their table, maybe as decoration. People are going to want your voice maybe as a token. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are just going to want to take, and that sounds cynical, but I've, I've seen it and I've un- unfortunately have been taken advantage of, and I've seen it in my parents. And so I would just say to her, please, please, you know, as much as it depends on you, and it's probably going to be more than you even think you need, mm. uh, take care of yourself. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And I think any little girl that is listening to this can, that will, that will listen to this can relate. Cause this is coming from a father 
And I wish you guys could see the emotion he put behind that answer because it was truly genuine. So, yeah, June, thank yeah. you so much for that. And I, I, I pray that that really like touches people. But yeah. we are transitioning to our next segment, which is the segment of all segments. It is called Rapid Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're going to ask you three questions <laughs> and we want the first thing to come to mind. Don't pass. Go. Don't turn around. Make a U-turn. Just the first thing that comes to mind. Tony, hit him. Let's go. <laughs> what do most people get wrong about you? Oh, what do most people get wrong about me? Um, oh, my goodness. Uh what do most people get wrong about me? What do most people get wrong about me? Why my brain immediately went to my hair. I don't know why. I, I, <laughs> my hair takes a lot. Hey, my hair takes a lot of work. You see? Do you see the little bit of like brown in this? Yeah, yeah I, I did that myself. I cut my own hair. I go to the barber maybe once a year, but I mostly cut my own hair. It's not gelled today, but when I gel it, I'm very meticulous. Yeah. And so when people think like, oh, that Asian hair, that's just kind of how it is. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> it, ta- it takes me a while. It p- takes a lot of effort and a lot of thought. And even this little swoosh right here is very, very intentional. Yeah. And so people who may think this is easy or like that Asian kind of K-pop hair just comes natural. I just got to tell you, ma'am, sir, <laughs> it comes with a lot, of, a lot of passion and a lot of thought. And really it's like, it sounds so vain, but it's really the only part of my morning routine that I spend a lot of everything else. I'm good. Yeah. I'm like unshaved right now. And, you know, I'm just wearing my tea. But this right here, <laughs> I put thought into. Oh, that's so good. That's, oh, a, that's a crazy answer. I'm sorry. No, that's, oh, I love that's it. the first thing it. that came to mind. Rapid fire. Um, <laughs> what I see you're drinking coffee over there or maybe it's coffee. I don't know. What is your favorite coffee? Oh, man. I make my coffee at home. Yeah. I make this cold drip that takes hours and hours and it is just pure. Co- and right now I actually made this horchata mix. So this horchata mix is white rice. You let it sit in water with the cinnamon stick, almonds, brown sugar, a drop of vanilla. And then you blend that mix and then you take the water out of that mix and you add it to your coffee. And you got horchata mm. and it is so good. Mm. It's so good. So I would say probably this horchata is probably my favorite. I am going to re-listen to this so I can I, literally do that same thing. Oh, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you for the recipe. <laughs> I'll send it to y'all. I will send it to y'all. It, it's got this little kick to it. It's so good. Ooh. Exclusive. Exclusive. <laughs> you heard it here first. World premiere. That's for free. All right. When's the last time you didn't feel enough? The last time I didn't feel enough. So I've been in some conversations with some publishers for uh, this book that I'm working on, which is that is maybe this may be the first time that I'm saying that on a podcast. Yes. I'm working on a on a second Again. book. Exclusive. And I, I, yeah, and I, <laughs> I signed with a new publisher. But I noticed as I was talking with these publishers, this, this will sound, I'm, I'm already apologizing, right? Because that's kind of my natural posture. I should stop apologizing, but yeah, it sounds no like apologizing. such a, 
Yeah, it, it sounds like such a small problem because it's like I'm like I'm like oh while I was talking with these publishers, you know, it just feels kind of wrong to even like complain about that. But when I didn't feel enough was when I was in these Zoom meetings, like as I was like giving the sales pitch for the book, so to speak, you know, and talking about the book. There's all those voices that came up, you know, to kind of go back to the top of the hour about like, man, are they really going to like this? Or like, are you are you really over? You might be over promising and you're going to undeliver. And then as the publishers were talking, I just felt so anxious, like my back, like every time I talked with a different person, I had the back sweats, I was getting feverish. I just kept feeling like this is not going to be good enough and it's not going to be, they're not going to like this. And what I noticed though was each publisher that I talked to, they spent a lot of time talking about their own benefits and what they offer. And I remember getting red faced in one of the meetings because I realized in the middle of the meeting, I was like, you know what? I think they're trying to sell themselves to me. (laughs) And so there was like a, almost like a back and forth happening inside my mind and my heart. Because on one hand, I was like, I'm not feeling enough. I'm like, wait a minute. They're actually interested in me. They actually like me. Like they actually do want to pick up on my book. And the four publishers that I talked with, they all ended up sending offer letters, which is wild. Wow. Which which is just wild. Well, congrats on that, man. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Another one. Another world premiere, guys. You heard it here first. <laughs> we got another book on the way. Man. So, June, we're so excited and we're, we're, we're thankful. And I can't wait for people to hear this. Um, but where can people find you, connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, JSPark3000. Those are all my carefully constructed posts. Twitter is like my real like live thoughts when I just think something, I tweet it. It's probably not a good idea. It's like Trump on his golden toilet. I, I shouldn't do it. They got to take it away from me. <laughs> they can find me on Twitter uh, and you can find me on, I'm still on Facebook, which is, it's, there's still some people left sharing uncle and grandma memes. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, but Instagram is where I'm mostly at. All right. Well, That's guys, awesome. follow him. We'll post all that in the show notes as well. Again, JS, this was an honor. Um, I think this is going to bless a lot of people. And a lot of people can relate to this. So thank yeah. you for hopping on our podcast, Authentically Yes. Thanks again. All right. God bless y'all. Thank you, Conroy and Tony. Appreciate it. Thank you. And this was another another good episode. And I'm 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 just thankful for, for people like JS because um his knowledge, his heart. And I love what I really loved about this uh episode was how he talks about his process, how he's growing through his process. And I think it's really cool to hear people talk and grow through their process. And now that He's a father to see him instilling that into his daughter. I thought was is, is really dope. Yeah, I I thought it was amazing how he talked about, you know, when there's two people in a dialogue, it's not just two people or two voices per se, but there's so many other voices and experiences that, that we bring to that conversation. That blew my mind because I've never thought about it that way, but it's yeah. so, so true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't wait for people to listen to this one. Um, just because I think he, he touches a lot of different 
different areas um and and it's going to be very very special um but you know what time it is and i hope you're ready tony because this is your time um we got the friendship quiz the quiz of all quizzes um and this is shows who's the better friend and to be honest i'm not doing too hot and tony's not doing too hot either but we truly are friends guys just so you know so Tony, do you have a question for me? Yes, I do. And I think this is an easy one, but, you know, we'll see. You did that last time. I, I did because it was. And, yeah, yeah, didn't get it right. So give me a range. I'm going to give you some leeway here. Give me a range within 20 pins. What is what is my highest score a bowling. 50. Easy. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 300 is a perfect game. I'm going to say you bowled. Is that too high? Or is that right? I'm going to say you've bowled a 210. Look at you. You almost got that right. My highest score was a 236. You are very close, though. You had a 236? Yeah, bro. Don't underestimate your boy. 236? You were on fire that day. Oh, I sure was. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I was in, I was within 20. Twenty-six, yeah. You just didn't hit the within twenty, so maybe next time. Dun 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 dun. Whatever, Tony. <laughs> hey guys, thank you so much again for tuning in. Again, share with somebody, let somebody know. Give us a review, please, and uh, be authentic in everything that you do. Until next time, peace out. Hello.